2022. Episode 22. Oh, bug um, in my nose. Hold on. I'm sorry. What? You have a bug in your nose? <laughs> It's like a gnat or something flew up my nose. That was unpleasant. Uh, I did not like that at all. Just so we're clear. <laughs> all I thought about is that um, the thing in Star Wars when they're in that cave and then they shoot it and he's like, what kind of cave is this? And he's like, this is no cave. And then they zoom out. It was inside a monster. That's the best explanation of any Star Wars scene I've ever heard in my entire life. Second episode of Left of Skeptic. My name is Brittany Land. I am Kayla Moria. And we are a paranormal podcast. So sorry. I promise never to sing again on this podcast. Don't, what was I thinking? Don't make promises you can't keep. That's true. I think I've said that before. I'm so sorry. I'm so <laughs> sorry. People who've heard me made that promise before. Never apologize. Never give up. Never surrender. Yeah. What is that from? Never give up. The Three Musketeers? Never surrender. No. It's something oh, way less up, classy than that. Never give up. Never a surrender. 90s thing. It's a 90s thing. Okay. Hold on. Oh! <laughs> what is it? <laughs> it's from Galaxy Quest. Oh. <laughs> so, it's not even a real show. I've never even seen Galaxy Quest. <laughs> it's not even a real show. It's a movie. About a show. About... <laughs> A show that's making fun of Star Trek. With Tim Allen, right? With Tim Allen and uh, Severus Snape slash Hans Gruber. Oh, with the sad robot. Yeah, no, no. Sad robot is uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Same voice, though? Yes. You're right. Oh, yeah, he did. Vo- yeah, Alan Rickman. He voiced the All sad right. robot. You are 100% as, correct. As long, as long as I was right about the voice. <laughs> the web of all of the uh, amazing movies and tv shows that i love oh yeah (laughs) how are you i literally just saw you for the first time ever we are recording the podcast after hanging out yeah we hung out like 20 minutes ago yeah we my sister's in town and we were hanging out this is my sister my nephew and my my brother-in-law hello sister how are you? She listens to this podcast, so this isn't weird. But she doesn't know I was going to say hello to her. So hello, sister. How are you? I hope you're having fun at work, which is where you listen to this. Um, and I just saw you. But uh, yeah. I got to meet Brittany's sister. It was very exciting. Sister. What's funny is that you say that about your sister. Call her sister. Sister. Um, I also have always done that with my sister. So. Shapersky sisters. Sisters. Um, I am good. Uh, had a long week this last week, but I got to see my Travis. Mm-hmm. And that was a good mm-hmm. time. We put together a puzzle almost nice. entirely with our friend Lisa. It's not done yet. And then Travis was wanting to like put it back together and put it in the box 
or take it back what? apart and put it in the box. And I was like, absolutely not. You will put this you are back on this. the board. Yeah. And we will finish it the next time I visit you. You have an entire room that's just piled with stuff, so it's not going to be in your way. And if you yeah. if you take this all apart again, I will kill you. I'm going to be so mad. It's a like really complicated picture of the planet mercury surrounded by space so there's no like defining things it's hard how far did you get on it um it's a 750 piece puzzle and we probably have about a hundred ish pieces left that's not bad no not not for one night we like lisa came over and we did it all in one night he definitely has to keep that together exactly you're basically done exactly all that hard work he just wants to throw it away in a box right what while i was at travis's house um i received some interesting messages this weekend oh my gosh are you talking about willie diction yeah willie diction and medieval medieval which what if you remember their names it's because they were featured as part of our homegrown listener story episode they were out looking at some storm clouds and rainbows. I don't know if Nick was there. I know Willie was definitely there, and they both sent us the videos. They were looking at these rainbows, and then there were these lights, these UFOs in the sky. It was pretty Unidentified flying cool. objects. It was pretty cool that they saw something, like, extraterrestrial, and they're like, first things first. Send it to Leftist Skeptic. <laughs> so... Mitty sent it to Left of Skeptic. Willie sent it directly to me and was like, show Brit. I was like, well, yeah, <laughs> obviously. It was insane. It was, it, I, I loved it on so many levels. I love that that was the, his, their first thought was to like, send it to the girls. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and also just that it happened. And then they're like, I got to document this. It's pretty spooky and cool. Um, I, was sent through Instagram Messenger, which is kind of like Snapchat. Once you watch mm-hmm. it, you can't rewatch it. So I did a screen record on my phone. And I'm going to save it and I will post it on our social media because it's pretty cool to see. It is pretty cool. I agree. I agree. I'm Thank not you, saying you that it's aliens. For sending this to us. But I want it to be aliens. Well, you're not saying it's not aliens. Exactly. I mean you're halfway there. It's it's not not aliens. So, <laughs> the other cool thing I got sent this weekend was from my mom. Oh, your mom! And it was a video of my grandma drinking Earthrider beer. Welcome to the club, Grandma. We're also both drinking Earthrider beer. So Grandma Beth got a video of herself drinking. Some Earthrider beer. It was the purple can, which I'm pretty sure is Black Crush. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's Black Crush. And she took a sip, and she was like, hmm, that's pretty good. I was like, yeah, Grandma, go! So I was at the brewery this weekend, and I had a couple ideas. One, I had kind of mentioned in one of the ads last week that I have it on good authority that there are some spooky things that happen in the brewery. And my sister was... My sister and my brother-in-law were with me and we were getting a tour. And she's like, have you brought the spirit box to the brewery to listen for voices? Because that's what people hear is they're just hanging out, doing their stuff. And they kind of hear voices, even though it's like really loud with machinery stuff. And I was like, no, 
but obviously that's what we're gonna have to do so you and me we gotta bring the spirit box to earth rider spirit box and your camera because cameras i think capture things better than cell phone photos do when it comes to supernatural. yep so we'll uh We'll go, we'll do our own little paranormal investigation, we'll get the proper tour, learn all about it. I've actually done the tour multiple times, but it's super cool. (laughs) So anyone who hasn't done the tour and is really interested as to how breweries work, you also get a bunch of beer samples while you do it, so it's like a win-win all around. And what was it, $6? Yeah, 6 or $7. It's pretty cheap. Oh, it's so cheap. It's awesome. It's awesome. So I would definitely recommend it. Don't drink and drive. There you go. <laughs> um. So other than seeing your sister, what else fun did you do this week? Well, it was Steve's birthday. Oh, yeah. Happy birthday, Steve. Happy birthday, Steve. I got him. Um, he's a big disc golfer. So I actually got him a, I believe they just call it chains. The little basket thingy with the chains. I got him a really fancy version of that. Luckily, his friends are really good at sneaky messages. So I messaged Mikey and I said, hey, Mikey, I want to get him these, this uh, thingy. I don't know what, what kind because I don't know. I refer to it as a thingy. So obviously I'm not the person to pick it out. And he, uh, Mikey set me up with some disc golf knowledge. You picked a good, a good man. Mikey is my go-to for help with Sean presence too. Mikey's the best. Mikey is the best. It was funny. I went to go message him, and the last time I messaged him was last June for Steve's last birthday. <laughs> I'm like, hello, Mikey. It's me again. <laughs> Our, uh, My husband, your partner, have a pretty awesome group of friends. Yep. Especially Mikey. Especially Mikey <laughs> and Wes and Claire and Benji. And, oh, man, shout out to all y'all for being so great. Right? Right. (laughs) Anyway, I'm still bad at segues. And before we get into our stories this week, we have to talk about our sponsors. We want to talk about our sponsors. Are you ready? Yep. Oh, you're so much better than that than I am. I don't have fake nails. (laughs) Back to basics this week, Brittany. What? Last week, we we tried those new beers, but this week, we're going back to the basics that we love. Ooh, yeah, totally. This week, I've got my Stony Point IPA and the cool-looking surfer tall boy. It's Earthrider's tribute to the fresh water surf scene. It drops in with a heavy tropical fruit nose before kicking out citrus and resinous flavors. I think the drop-in and kick-out are surfing references. <laughs> yeah, you might be right there. It didn't fully sound right coming out of your mouth. <laughs> I know. Cowabunga? I don't know. That's, that's my surfing reference. <laughs> and I've got the Royal Bohemian Pilsner. Not bottles this time, cans, but still good. The Royal Bohemian at Earthrider encourages you to follow your own path. Lake Superior Water and Bohemian Malt makes a crisp and clean lager with a noble hop bite. Noble indeed. That's beautiful. Especially for the solstice. (laughs) Follow your own path. Lake Superior Water. (laughs) All of Earthrider's beers are crafted in Superior, Wisconsin with Lake Superior Water and perfect ingredients. 
So go out and get yourself a Stopo or a Roboho. <laughs> Kayla, I don't think that's going to be a thing. Creeped, crept, crept. For more information on these beers and the rest of their selection, visit earthrider.beer. I have to talk to you about a place that I'm pretty sure you've never heard of. I don't know for sure that you don't know about this place, but I've never heard you talk about it, and we've talked about a lot of spaces. Yeah. And this place is pretty popular. Okay. I'm going to tell you about the Crescent Hotel and Spa. Where's that? The Crescent Hotel and Spa is located in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. I don't think I know about that. Do tell. The Crescent Hotel and Spa is located in Eureka Springs, high up in the Ozark Mountains of Northwest Arkansas. Eureka Springs is a small city with a population of less than 3,000 people. But it's still a pretty big deal as the whole city is on the National Register of Historic Places and has been selected as one of America's distinctive destinations by the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Whoa, an entire town? Mm Mm-hmm. That's absurd, but awesome. It is a tourist destination because of its distinctly unique character. The city has a steep, winding set of streets filled with Victorian-style cottages, manors, and business buildings that are built along streets that curve around the hills and rise and fall with the landscape in a five-mile-long loop. As an added bit of fun, there are no traffic lights. (laughs) What? So it's a five-mile-long hilly loop with no traffic lights, and I don't think I ever want to drive there. So you just can drive around in a circle in a circle without stopping? Well, they say no traffic lights. I assume there's, like, stop signs and stuff. Wow. Okay. One of these historic Victorian-style buildings that give the town its character is the Crescent Hotel and Spa. The businesses within its walls have changed over the years, some with better reputations than others, but the building itself has remained a constant overlooking the tiny little city. Known as the Grand Old Lady of the Ozarks, the history of the Crescent Hotel is the story of Eureka Springs itself. They're combined. They both exist because of the local water. Kind of like the Elms. You love water story, yeah, I was going to say. It made me think of the Elms, which is part of what intrigued me. Is my new thing, well, is my old thing, is my thing, big buildings and yours is water related because you also did um the place with the fairies that had waterfalls oh yeah the devil's punch bowl so i've talked about the elms the devil's punch bowl Uh and now i'm talking about the crescent hotel and spa yeah water (laughs) it's your jam Mm -mm -mm. in eureka springs more than 60 springs which bubbled up healing water in and around the downtown area were visited by thousands of tourists in the late 19th century. A former governor of Arkansas and United States senator named Clayton Powell was among those who traveled to the city at the time. As his political career matured, he got involved in the local railroad business. To make the venture more profitable, Powell sought to bring about a mixture of both commercial and recreational traffic. When Powell discovered Eureka Springs mineral water, he became determined to make the city a key vacation destination. Partnering with Richard Kearns, the two men sponsored the formation of the Eureka Springs Railroad, and then in 1884, they commissioned architect Isaac S. Taylor 
to build a luxurious hotel high atop a cliff that overlooked the heart of Eureka Springs. Powell and Kern saved no expense, spending some $294,000 to construct the building. According to the inflation calculator, $294,000 in 1886 would be worth $7,736,842 today. Today's money. Yep. Whoa, that's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. Yeah. Irish stonemasons carved and assembled foot-and-a-half-thick blocks of limestone from a white river quarry 10 miles away from the site. These artisans were actually brought over to the United States by Powell's Eureka Springs Improvement Company for the sole purpose of building this hotel. Dang. Like the Eureka Springs Railroad, the company was also headed by Powell and Clayton. Following nearly two years of construction, the Crescent Hotel, named after the mountaintop that it sits on, was finally complete. The doors opened to the public on May 20th of 1886, with a grand gala where hundreds of guests dressed in their absolute best, ate, drank, and danced to a live orchestra. Ugh, love it. While the main draw of the building was the healing waters of Eureka Springs, the hotel upped the appeal by offering a large building with airy rooms, exquisite furnishings, a dining room that once seated more than 500 people, and outside amenities that included a swimming pool, tennis courts and croquet, a beautiful landscape of flower gardens, winding boardwalks and gazebos, and the lavishness of this hotel was unmatched at this time. Basically, it was a huge gold star. People loved this place. Business did well in the summer, but when the railroad saw a decline in occupancy in the off-season, a group of concerned residents encouraged the business to lease the structure as a dormitory. That's actually super smart. Really smart. The Crescent College and Conservatory for Young Women opened for fine young ladies and ran from 1908 to 1924 in the off-season and continued to act as a resort during the summer. However, after operating for 16 years, the revenues from tuition and summer guests were not high enough to maintain the cost of running the large building, and the women's college closed. It did return briefly as a junior college in the off-season from 1930 to 1934, but that didn't hold up either. It just wasn't worth the cost to maintain it. Mm. Mm-hmm. It sat abandoned for a while after that 1934 section until in 1937, a man named Norman Baker arrived on the scene and bought the aging hotel for the purpose of opening a cancer hospital and health resort. Oh, Okay. Advertising miracle cures that required neither surgery nor painfully extensive tests, the colorful mailers and brochures were sent out for the Baker's Cancer Curing Hospital. It referred to the area as the Switzerland of America under the cheery banner, with the quote, where sick folks get well, and promised that cancer was curable <coughs> and promised that cancer was curable without scalpels or radium or x-rays. What that advertising left out, though, was the fact that Baker was not a doctor. Mm -hmm. And he had Mm -hmm. no cure for cancer. He was a fucking scumbag. A fraud. And he had been a fraud for years. That's why the medical board ran him out of Iowa, where he had come from. In 1936, he was convicted for practicing medicine without a license, and the American Medical Association had condemned the many elixirs that he sold for a number of different ailments, including cancer. So 
this guy's the worst fucking human. And he, this was, this was back before the internet. There was no way to like hop on and write a story to show everybody. Even newspapers were hardly like able to spread worldwide news. Right. His patients were desperate people, weak with sickness, Mm -hmm. just pale, sickly, terrible conditions. They came to Eureka Springs from everywhere. It was their last hope. And they paid cash for the treatments. Treatments being fresh air, healthy food, exercise, Formula 5, and the power of positive thinking. Formula 5 was a mixture of alcohol, glycerol, carbolic acid, ground watermelon seed, corn silk, and clover leaves. Baker administered it by injection at the site of the cancer up to seven times a day. Whoa. Just injecting alcohol and glycerin and watermelon seed? Glycerol, but yes. Glycerol. Sorry. This may be a little bit better than glycerin. It's still not good. Still not okay. While operating the hospital, Baker was being investigated by federal authorities, and in 1939, he was finally arrested for mail fraud. That's how they got him. Not his shitty, shitty fake hospital practices, but the colorful, fun, completely bullshit brochures. One U.S. postal inspector estimated that Baker had made as much as $500,000 per year selling his miracle elixirs through the mail while in Eureka Springs. Baker was convicted to serve a four-year sentence in Leavenworth while they continued their investigations. The inquiry revealed that over the years, Baker had defrauded cancer patients out of approximately $4 million. That is despicable. Is there a word that better suits that than despicable? While no one actually died from Baker's quote-unquote cure, the investigation showed that his treatments most likely hastened the death of those suffering from cancer because they did not seek out and receive effective forms of treatment. Actual, yeah. What? Okay. If you're wondering what happened to that shithead, Baker, in 1944, he was released from Leavenworth and moved to Florida, where he lived comfortably until his death in 1958. Fuckhead. Well, isn't that just lovely for him? Awesome. Our justice system, man. After the fraud hospital was closed, the building sat empty until 1946, when the hotel was purchased by four Chicago businessmen who began to restore the old hotel to its former elegance. The hotel began to thrive until tragedy struck in 1967 when a fire swept through the fourth floor of the South Wing and much of it was destroyed. Over the next several years, the hotel passed through several hands as repairs and more restorations were made. In May of 1997, Marty and Elise Roenick, which I think I'm pronouncing right, but I couldn't find an actual pronunciation online, It's R-O-E-N-I-G-K. I'm going to say, in all of my not-educated-with-pronunciation glory, that is correct. (laughs) Continue. Marty and Elise Roenick purchased the building and announced, In five years, we pledge to have this grand lady of the Ozarks back to where she was a hundred years ago. But Ozark residents, having heard these promises too many times before, were skeptical. (laughs) Still, the Ronics began to rebuild the spas. The first year, a 6,500-square-foot New Moon Spa opened, which included Vichy showers, a hydrotherapy tub, sauna, massage, therapy tables, tanning beds, and exercise equipment. The next major project was to restore the hotel's skyline, which had been destroyed in that fire. 
Costing well over a million dollars, the 3,500-square-foot penthouse, originally a observation tower, and the 200-pound, 24-foot-tall crescent moon weather vane were both restored. All the meantime, restorations on the guest rooms, lounges, electrical and plumbing updates, landscaping were all going on. And on September 6 of 2002, the Ronick's bold announcement became a reality. After $5 million in renovations, the Grand Hotel had been fully restored to its original stately glory. Just took $5 million. I wonder why it didn't happen sooner. <laughs> With an intense 135-year history, it makes sense that the Crescent Hotel would have more than a few ghost stories to tell. The oldest story, and oldest ghost, relates to the construction of the building originally. It is said that after the frame of the hotel had been constructed in the 1880s, that one of the Irish stonemasons plunged to his death in what is now room 218. This room proves to be the most spiritually active room in the hotel, and has attracted television film crews for decades because of the quantity and quality of the ghost sightings reported. Oh, quality. Throughout the history of the Victorian Hotel, employees have referred to this entity as Michael, a classified poltergeist due to the nature of the unexplained activity. Guests have witnessed hands coming out of the bathroom mirror, cries of a falling what? man in the ceiling. Well, that wouldn't make sense. The door opening and then slamming shut, unable to be mm. opened again. Mm. And the intrigue of this activity has drawn guests specifically to request the accommodations of room 218 because they want the chance to experience something. All right, you weirdos. In the lobby, a gentleman dressed in formal Victorian clothing, complete with a top hat, has often been spotted at the bottom of the stairway and sitting at the bar. Nice. Described as a distinguished-looking gentleman with a mustache and beard, many have claimed to try and strike up a conversation with him. However, he just sits quietly and never responds before suddenly disappearing. It sounds like me. Strong, silent type. Yep. Just sits quietly, and then you try and talk to me, and then I'm just like, I'm out. Bye. In the hotel's crystal dining room, many employees have encountered playful spirits in Victorian dresses. One holiday season, while the dining room was closed, the grand Christmas tree and packages underneath moved from one end of the room to another. Oh, <laughs> The next morning, employees found the tree and packages moved, with chairs circling and facing the newly placed holiday symbol. Another time, employees returned in the morning to find the dining room in perfect order, except for the menus scattered throughout the room. This is just a server's nightmare. <laughs> Yet another time, a waitress looked into the huge mirror between the doors from the dining room to the kitchen and saw a man and woman in Victorian garb facing each other as if they were in a wedding. Aww. The groom turned and made eye contact with the waitress, and then the whole couple faded away. I thought you were going to say you, like, winked at her, and I was like, not appropriate. The waitress quit her position shortly after this incident. Another commonly reported paranormal activity is a man in Victorian clothing sitting at a table near the window saying, I saw the most beautiful woman here last night, and I'm waiting for her to return. That's sad and beautiful at the same time. Many have recounted seeing apparitions in Victorian ball attire dancing around the room during the wee hours of the morning while the room was closed and dark. From back in its, and I use this term loosely, hospital days, <laughs> several apparitions from the hospital visit the hotel. For a time, the antique switchboard that was used at the time continued to be used in the hotel, 
but when it continually received phone calls from an otherwise empty basement, the use of the old switchboard was discontinued. Yeah. What? <laughs> it was here in the basement that Baker's patients were convinced of his miracle cures and shamelessly scammed into handing over their life savings for treatment. That piece of shit Baker has been seen in the hotel lobby at the foot of the stairway and down in the old recreation room that was in the basement. He is described as a man in a purple shirt and white linen suit, matching photographs of the famous entrepreneur. Infamous. Yeah, sounds really douchey. Apparently, Baker loved wearing purple and lilac and flaunting his fortune through gaudy jewelry. That's documented in a few different sources I found. He's a hard yeah, he's man to confuse with others. He's the worst. Like, you have these people in really nice Victorian clothing, and then this douchebag in a purple suit and purple shirt and white suit. Fuck that guy. Yeah, unless he's Prince. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. A nurse pushing a gurney residing in Baker's Old Morgue area is on the third floor. Dressed in all white, she is known to squeak and rattle down the halls of the hotel. She's only spotted after 11 p.m., the time when they used to move the deceased out of the cancer hospital, and her ghostly spirit vanishes when she reaches the end of the hallway. She's not always visibly seen, but more commonly you can just hear the squeak and rattle of the gurney as it goes down the hall. That's not upsetting at all. During the 1930s, this area was used as the morgue, and even today still houses Baker's old autopsy table and walk-in freezer as part of their tours. Also located on the third floor is the laundry area, and a hotel maintenance man witnessed all of the washers and dryers mysteriously turning on in the middle of the night. Housekeepers report meeting Theodora in room 419. She introduces herself as a cancer patient of Dr. Baker's and vanishes after civilities are verbally exchanged. One other often reported spirit is that of a young female who they believe once attended the Crescent College and Conservatory for Young Women. According to the tale, which has no verification, the young girl either jumped from or was pushed from the balcony to her death. Today, guests report hearing her screams as she falls. It's always women screaming, isn't it? Other apparitions have been cited in room 202 and 424, as well as a ghostly waiter carrying a tray of butter in the hallways. Steve Garrison, a cook at the hotel, has had two strange encounters in the kitchen area of the haunted hotel's crystal dining room. One morning, while slicing and dicing vegetables, he looked up and saw a little boy with pop bottle glasses, dressed in old-fashioned clothing and knickers, skipping around the kitchen. Another morning, Garrison flipped on the lights to begin the day's preparation when some or all of the pots and pans came flying off their hooks. Oh. One of my sources for this was Legends of America, which I've used for other stories, and they have a mm -hmm. comment section. A user named Bladewalker commented on May 9th of 2021 with his own tale and said, My longtime girlfriend, my youngest son, and I spent the weekend there in 2006 in room 419. We checked in late on a Friday night. With little to do so late, we chose to get some refreshments at the bar before calling it a night. The next morning, a full bladder woke me up with a vengeance. I went to do my business, and while I was sitting there, I clearly heard a voice say my son's name, asking if it was him. Oh. I immediately thought that maybe my girlfriend had woken up, 
But I also thought, gee, why would she ask about my son, who she knew quite well? Right. I lightly pushed the door open, expecting to see my girlfriend, but both she and my son were still fast asleep. I have no mm. rational explanation for this. The next day, we went out to do some sightseeing, and when we returned, our door would not open. We summoned the repairman, who was unable to figure out why the door refused to work. He ended up breaking into the room and replacing the lock. We had no further incidents after that. The Crescent Hotel and Spa offers ghost tours every evening, even selling a room stay package that includes the room and two tickets to the tour. The tour guides themselves have had many countless paranormal stories from their time at the hotel. One such guide revealed that she had met a couple that was staying on the first floor near the governor's suite. The couple subsequently told the guide that on their second night in the building, they had slept with just a sheet covering the two of them. Mm -hmm. The husband then awoke in a deep sweat, realizing that someone or something had tucked them in with a comforter. <gasps> he Ew. removed it, but apparently woke up three more times that night. They had been tucked in three more times that Ugh. night. Ugh. Ugh. No. No, 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 no. No, no. No, thanks. Another guide recounted an incident where two guests checked into room 221 one early spring afternoon. Upon leaving the elevator for the second floor, they immediately encountered a man wearing an all-black Victorian-style outfit. With a smile, he asked the guests as to whether or not they required help finding their guest room. Believing the person to be a hotel employee, they agreed. The man in the Victorian attire led them to room 221, unlocking the door and pushing it open. As the couple entered... The man stayed outside the door, smiling, and tilted his head from side to side. One of the two realized that they had not tipped the man, and when they spun around with some cash, he had seemingly disappeared. When they tried to re-enter room 221 later that evening, the door would not budge. So the couple went down to the front desk, where they asked what was wrong with the key. The staff member stated that they had somehow received the key to room 321. The two described the man who had originally let them into room 221, and the staff member reported that no such person worked at that hotel. Ugh. They didn't have people going around the hallways asking people if they needed help finding their rooms. So it's either a ghost or a very creepy individual. Creepy, helpful individual. Creepy, helpful individual. <laughs> it turns out that the ghostly reminders of the hotel's past are not the only surprises to pop up over the years. A report from the Arkansas Democrat Gazette in April of 2019 tells of more than 400 glass bottles that were unearthed in the backyard of the Crescent Hotel. They appear to date from 1938 to 1940, when the building served as Baker's shitty hospital and health resort. According to lore, in the hospital morgue, Baker had rows of jars full of samples of tumors that had been removed from patients. A full-page advertisement in the hospital's magazine included pictures of the jars. The bottles in the advertisement look a lot like the bottles buried behind the 135-year-old hotel. Okay. These bottles perfectly match with the posters and photographs of Baker's bottles at that time, said Mike Evans, station assistant archaeologist with the Arkansas Archaeological Survey in Fayetteville, who had been working on the site. Keith Scales, who leads ghost tours at the Crescent, said officials were told that subsequent owners of the building took all of Baker's specimen bottles to the dump in the 1960s. He thought that meant the landfill out of town, but apparently it meant a dump behind the building. 
Susan Benson, the Crescent Hotel's landscape artist, uncovered the bottle dump on February 5th of that year when she was moving earth with the backhoe to make way for an archery range behind the hotel. Oh, my God. The Arkansas Department of Environmental Quality and the Arkansas State Police were called in. State police officers determined that this wasn't a crime scene or a burial site. More than 20 of the bottles contained what appear to be tissue, many still floating mm -hmm. in alcohol almost 100 years later. They could have been animal parts, or Baker could have purchased human remains to use for his display to help deceive people. That seems highly unlikely. Evans also said that 16-millimeter film reels were also found at the excavation site, and picture frames, the words on one frame could be deciphered through the decay as reading before Baker treatments. Oh, okay. This hotel is now self-described as America's most haunted hotel, and it has been featured on the show that shall not be named, Sci-Fi's <laughs> Ghost Hunters, and Paranormal Witness. The ghosts are not scary, but overall, I think this tale serves to show us yet again that dead people aren't really who we have to worry about. It's the live mm -hmm. ones that can be really dangerous. And on a final note, Brittany... I wanted to tell you the story of Morris. Morris? I specifically saved this ghost story for the end for you. Ooh, I'm excited. There have been many other cats that have walked the Crescent Hotel halls since its grand opening, but it wasn't until 1973 when hotel records show an orange tabby named Morris that walked into the lobby and stayed for 21 years. 21 years? Mm-hmm. This cat became such a fixture of the Crescent Hotel that he was referred to as the general manager. Oh, that is the cutest. Once again, you have a kitten with a job. This cat <laughs> became so much. <laughs> This cat became the cat of not only the hotel, but also the community. Oh. A local resident recounted, "During those years, no visit to the Crescent would be complete without a Morris sighting, or better yet, a chance to pet this hospitality icon." That just warms my heart so much. Okay, you are all about places that are water-centric and where cats have jobs. <laughs> and since the Crescent was and continues to be the center for so much community activity, their cat became our cat. We loved it when we would see him enter and exit through his specially constructed kitty door. The portal oh was God. flanked on both interior and exterior sides by carpeted steps to allow ease of coming and going. Oh my gosh. To further oh prove gosh. the heartfelt sentiments of local citizens towards this feline, when Morris died, more than 300 people attended the farewell ceremony held at the hotel. Oh my gosh. His wake was followed by his internment at the hotel property. Today, visitors can step outside of the East Lawn and see Morris's headstone. His photo and remembrance poem are in the lobby, explained Jack Moyer, general manager of the Crescent. And the poem reads... In memory of Morris, the resident cat at the Crescent Hotel, he filled his position exceedingly well. The general manager title he wore was printed right there on his own office door. He acted as greeter and sometimes as guide. Whatever his duties, he did them with pride. He chose his own house and set his own pace. The guests were impressed by his manners and grace. Upstairs and down, he kept everything nice. They might have had ghosts, but they never had mice. Oh my god, I'm gonna cry. 
And that's just the most beautiful kitty story ever. Feral cats have been welcome in and out of the hotel for years, ever since its current owners bought the building in 1997. They've had several different general managers throughout the years, but none hold a candle to Morris. And Morris wants to make sure that his presence is still known. There is a good chance that Crescent visitors of today can still meet the hotel's feline patriarch. It has been reported quite often by hotel guests, especially when they are seated in the lobby near Morris's pictorial homage, that they have felt a cat rub up against their legs. And audio recordings by several paranormal investigations have captured his warm purr, which is perfect for America's most haunted hotel. Perfect. Oh, that's so... Sorry, that really got me. <laughs> I just really needed a cat story, I guess. So yeah, there's a really shitty character in this like place. There's a shitty... Baker was a piece of shit. We don't like him. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Morris... Morris. Morris, Saving the general the manager cat. I love it. I love it. Um, you're right. I hadn't heard of the hotel, but interestingly, I've heard of that guy mm-hmm. because I love true crime and I love paranormal. And I actually heard a story, a true crime story of that horrible doctor. But I didn't know about the hauntings that happened in the place where he did his horrible, horrible, horrible business. Yep. It's like full circle in my world. So, skeptic scale, para to normal, para being five, normal being one, what are you going to give it? 4.5. I know about the shit he did. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I'm giving it a five Plus because of cat. Morris. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Plus cat. Plus cat. <laughs> <laughs> I have a story for you, but first, we gotta drink some beer. Yeah. How's your Pilsner? Oh, you mean my Roboho? It's delicious. How's your Stopo? I kind of thought we agreed that that wasn't going to be a thing. <laughs> yeah, you said that. But I'm going to pretend that if I just keep saying this, it's going to become a thing. Like, creep, crep, crept. Anyway, Brittany. <laughs> what events do we have to look forward to coming up? <laughs> oh, this coming Friday, June 25th, catch Big Wave Dave and the Ripples at the Festival Ground stage from 6 to 9 p.m. Tickets are $7 for general admission or pay $40 ahead of time for a reserved table that seats you and three of your friends and front and center. Also, I'm definitely going to be at the Big Wave Dave show. (laughs) And then next Saturday, July 3rd, Wisconsin's own Horseshoe and Hand Grenades take the stage at the festival grounds with special guest Feeding Leroy. I know these bands. They're fantastic. I love them all. The event starts at 5.30 p.m. and tickets are $20 for general admissions and $100 for reserved table for four. Totally worth it. For more information on these events and to purchase your tickets, visit earthrider.beer. And to stay informed about future events and releases, follow Earthrider on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at earthriderbeer. Let's go. Okay, so you talked about a woman's college. Yes. Sort of. My entire story is about a college. Okay. 
but it's co-ed so it's it doesn't really it doesn't really connect look i was trying to make a connection and there isn't really one but uh i admire the effort thank you i tried you know <laughs> you gotta you sometimes you can just do what you can do um i'm gonna tell you tonight about kenyan college never heard of it and i'm excited all right yeah so founded in 1824 by an episcopal church bishop named philander chase Kenyon College is in Gambier, Ohio, and it is one of the oldest and most prestigious colleges in the Midwest. In fact, in 2019, Forbes magazine ranked it number 30 among the liberal arts colleges and number 71 among 650 colleges and universities in the United States. Very nice. Very nice. But Kenyon College isn't just known as a fantastic place to get a liberal arts education. It also has some pretty well-known ghost stories. Because we're going to go straight into it. I'm not even going to give you all of the background story because oh. there's so much ghostly activity. Just We're going to crack on into it right away. Ripping it off right away. No, no background, all story. Well, you know it was founded in 1824 and that's all you get. Okay, all right, I'm ready. So one of the oldest stories is that of Stuart Pearson. So in 1905, Stuart Lanthrop Pearson was a Delta Kappa Epsilon pledge at Kenyon College. As the story goes, as part of his initiation, the DKE brothers brought Stuart to the train tracks <laughs> that ran over the Cocosing River. What? What? Uh, so um, after I dropped out of college the first time I went, I uh -huh. dated a man who was a member of the Tau Kappa Epsilon, and they called themselves the Teeks. And now I'm over here wondering if these guys called themselves the Deeks. <laughs> well, you know what? They are kind of Deeks, because you wait to see what happens to Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I'm ready. So they brought Stuart to the train tracks that run over the Cocosing River, which runs adjacent to Kenyon campus. So they left him blindfolded and he was supposed to wait there until he was retrieved and he was meant to spend the time contemplating his impending membership. However, an unannounced train passed over the bridge and Stuart ended up being struck and killed. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. They are deeks. They are deeks. Thank you. Right? So since then, the tracks have been covered over with asphalt, and it was actually turned into a bike trail. But to this day, the Delta Kappa Epsilon brothers mark the anniversary of Pearson's death with a ceremony. Supposedly, they carry a coffin filled with stones down Middle Path and gather at the Trussell Bridge, where fraternity officers read the coroner's report by torchlight. And then the ceremony ends by burning a wooden... T DKE sign. Now I'm just going to call them Deeks. Uh, <laughs> but with burning a, a DKE sign, which they extinguish in the river and then leave its ashes behind on the bike trail covering the old tracks. It's said that on their walk back to campus, the brothers will often hear the sound of a far off train whistle, the warning that never happened. For the record, I think they're trying to be respectful, but that sounds really douchey. And I can't tell if it's just because reading the they're coroner's report, yeah, or if it's because it's fucking douchey. Let's read the <laughs> coroner's report and make it part of our creepy ass initiation and rush or whatever. Stupid. Anyway, continue. <laughs> so the students who reside at Old Kenyon Residence Hall claim that they can see Pearson himself 
staring out of a window on the fourth floor, looking at the train tracks below. Hmm. But Stuart Pearson isn't the only ghost that's said to be found in Old Kenyon Residence Hall. The tragic history of the residence hall can be found with a quick Google search, but my favorite telling of it, as well as some of the spooky stories that go along with it, can be found in Natalie Shuttler's 2019 New York Times article, My Haunted Dorm Room. Nice. You know it's going to be good. Quote, during my sophomore year, I lived in a haunted dorm. I'll admit, I've always loved a good ghost story, so you could say that I was primed to have a ghost sighting, or at least hopeful for one. And at Kenyon College in Ohio, where I went to school, ghosts are a big part of campus lore. Every October, the security guards host a bonfire and recount straight-faced the tales of disappearing footprints, disembodied whales, and an elevator that operates on its own. One professor leads a haunted campus tour, and the Kenyon alumni from different generations share versions of the stories at reunions and gatherings. The stories themselves are regularly embellished and have taken on some mythic proportions, but the original tales come from a handful of tragic accidents over the course of the last century. One such calamity took place at 4 a.m. on February 27, 1949, when a towering stone dormitory called Old Kenyon burned to the ground in a devastating fire that killed nine students. Two of the students died as a result of skull fractures they suffered after jumping from the windows. The fire was national news. The dorm, a beautiful 1829 Gothic Revival building with spires, had been the centerpiece of the campus. So the school vowed to rebuild it quickly, and by next year, Old Kenyon was ready for a new inhabitants. The exterior was reset with the structure's original stones, but the inside was constructed with concrete and steel to be safer and with a more modern design. According to the legend, the ghost of the dead students prefer to walk along the old floor plan. Allegedly, they silently traverse the hallways, visible only from the waist up. That is, or their feet can be seen gliding over students' heads. I don't like that. No, I... No. When I lived in Old Kenyon, I never saw any meandering spirits. But sometimes, in the middle of the night, when not a Kenyonite was stirring, I'd wake to an odd pattern. The room would get very cold, and I would feel the presence of a slow-moving force gliding towards me past my dresser. And my makeup cases, vitamin bottles, and other dresser-top trinkets would clatter to the floor. But they wouldn't fall all at once. Instead, the items would drop to the carpet one by one as if someone was pushing a hand slowly through them. Mm. In these moments, I'd lie very still, paralyzed by an oddly cheerful terror. My ghost is back. There were a few other poltergeist-esque encounters that happened during that year. Once my roommate and I fled screaming after a disembodied voice woke us both up at the same time, and a college boyfriend once dreamed that he heard a door slam before he was locked in place by cold hands pressing him into the bed. I don't like that. No, no. Other tales that have emerged out of Old Kenyon Hall include, according to Kenyon's website, Years ago, on the anniversary of the fire, it is said that a student went into his room and found a 1949 yearbook flipped open to the page in which all of the fire victims were listed, though he hadn't seen anyone going in or out of the room. Another student, who was living in a room where one of the victims had been trapped, heard someone pounding on his door shouting, Get out! When he went to open the door, no one was there. And yet another student claims that he was shaken awake one night and heard someone screaming, Ed, wake up! Fire! One of the boys who had died in the fire had lived in that room and was named Edward Brout. 
A more recent story from 2017 claims that a female student had been reduced to sleeping with her lights on after what appeared to be a burnt arm wrapped around Ah. her while she was laying in bed, Ah. paralyzing her with fear. Gross. Right? Right? What? No. Uh, Female students don't really um, make out very well in some of these stories. That is one of them. Good to know. Thanks for the heads up. You're welcome. And then there's the greenhouse ghost, which actually doesn't have anything to do with a greenhouse at all. Okay. According to collegeboundadvantage.com, Kenyon College has long been known for its excellent swimming and diving programs. And in 1935, Charles Schaefer, who was a Chicago oil tycoon and class of 1883 Kenyan alumnus, donated the funds to construct a state-of-the-art aquatic building on Kenyon's campus. Schaefer Pool opened in January of 1936 and contributed to Kenyon winning a number of Ohio Conference Swimming and Diving Championships in the years to follow. The building had a conservatory-style roof, which earned it the nickname of the Greenhouse. Okay. Which sounds beautiful until you hear what happened allegedly okay legend has it that students would compete with each other to see how high they could launch themselves into the air from the high dive and according to campus lore one night a student jumped so high that they smashed through the pane glass in the roof nearly decapitating themselves and then falling into the pool below uh-uh. No. Now, administrators at Kenyon College claim that no record of such an incident exists. However, students, faculty, custodians, and security officers tell a different tale. There had been many a story that after hours, people would hear the sound of a body impact on the water, followed by thrashing sounds. Upon investigation, they would see disturbed water, but no one in the pool. Then, when they were turned to leave, they would see a set of wet footprints leading away from the pool. Others would report that they would hear the sound of a diving board bounce not once, but three times. And then, upon turning towards the bird, they could see the board vibrating, but no one was near it. So, in high school, I was on the swim team, and I know what mm-hmm. the ceilings of these places look like. And I just keep picturing it and imagining myself hitting my head. Or imagining walking into a room with disturbed water and thinking you heard something and realizing nobody's there, and I don't like any of it. Yeah, one of the accounts went into significantly more detail and claimed that the student not only hit the pane of glass, broke it, but like broke their neck and then fell into the pool. But that seemed really aggressive. But I guess you get to hear it anyway. So there you go. (laughs) You're welcome. So in the 1980s, though, the building was converted to a dance studio. And during construction, the pool was drained and covered over with a false floor. And the conservatory roof was replaced with a wooden beamed roof, which was more appropriate for the new dance studio vibe. But the changes to the new building apparently were completely missed by the greenhouse ghost because staff members continue to tell stories of late night encounters such as hearing footsteps behind them as if someone is following them. And occasionally people will report the sound of splashing or the bouncing of a diving board. And, even more unexplainable, the appearance of wet footprints across the dance studio floor. Mm-mm. 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 Leonard Hall, specifically room 13, 
of course, is supposedly haunted, and residents report hearing creaking sounds and sense of presence, and a guard once claimed of having seen a figure in a baseball cap that appeared and then disappeared in front of him. And then there is the Capel's Residency Hall. I think that's how you say that. C-A-P-L-E-S. Capels? That's how I would pronounce it. Because it's not Capelli's. No, I, I think it would be Capels. But Capels. now you've got me thinking it might be Capelli's. Um, we right. can't pronounce things. <laughs> We've established this. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to think of how the local museum Capelli's spells it. I know it's with a K, but anyway. This residence hall. According to Kenyon's website, the haunting in the residence hall stems from an incident that happened in 1979 when a student fell down an elevator shaft. He was last seen at 2.30 a.m. coming home from a party in the new apartments. Another student, who took the stairs, saw him waiting in the lobby for the elevator. The elevator apparently got trapped between the 7th and 8th floors. Some say he was on his way to his girlfriend's room. And it's believed that he pried open the doors and tried to jump down the floor below him, um, inevitably falling down the elevator shaft in the process. He was found unconscious the next morning by a security guard and died in the hospital later that night. And women in this residence hall seem to be the main target of the haunting, complaining that they will sometimes feel the sensation of someone sitting on their beds. Or worse, feeling as if someone is laying on top of them, immobilizing them, and it is apparently sometimes accompanied by the smell of alcohol. Oh. Gross. That is not your girlfriend. Run along. Although, it's not always women who have experienced paranormal activities in Capels, Capelli's, Residence Hall. According to their website, one of the best documented incidences took place over the summer of 1995 after the students had left but before the summer conferences had started. It happened in the wee hours of the morning, several hours after the building had been checked and locked down for the night, and it was eventually filed in the campus safety office as an unexplained occurrence. Safety officer Dan Turner was working the north end that night, and when he came on duty at 11 p.m., he was told by the afternoon shift guy to keep an eye on Capelli's. I'm just going to call it Capelli's now. This is how we pronounce it. (laughs) The lights in the showers had been unexpectedly coming on, despite the fact that the security had thoroughly checked the building and found no one. Then, going on around 5 a.m., Dan Turner got an emergency call from dispatcher, all units to Capelli's. The switchboard operator, Joellen Bryant, had gotten three calls in rapid succession from rooms 511, 611, and 711, and each time she heard a woman scream and hang up. The sound was not mechanical, like the screeching of a fax machine, but decidedly human. Turner was the first officer to arrive and had been told to wait for the others. He positioned himself where he could watch both entrances, and he saw no one go in or out. Then three other officers arrived. Troy Steinmetz stayed in the lobby while Turner, Galen Nyberger, and Ryan Pence went through every room in the building. 
They even checked the trap door on the roof, which was padlocked. The showers were running on the fifth floor and steam was billowing into the hallway and the corner rooms on the upper floors where the phone calls had originated. The lights were on and every phone was unplugged. So they turned off the lights, they plugged in the phones, and then they prepared to leave. Then another call came in, another scream, this time from room 811. When Turner returned to the room, the light was back on. He let himself in the locked door and he saw that the phone was again unplugged. As he stood there, he heard the whir of the elevator going down. But the Capelli's elevator stays on the floor at last visited unless someone calls for it. By walkie-talkie, he checked with the other officers. Nobody had pressed the button. Who was going down in the elevator? They raced down the stairs to the first floor where they found Officer Steinman waiting outside, peering in through the glass at the lobby. He said, I wasn't about to wait for that elevator door to open. Uh, I wouldn't either. No. No, no. not at all. I like that he just ran outside and was like peering in through the glass like, I'm I'm gonna see what was in that elevator. (laughs) And then there are the gates of hell. Nope. Nope, nope. That's never good. Which are stone pillars that can be found on the south side of Kenyon campus. And although no one really knows exactly where they got their name, there's an as the story goes legend that says that writer Anthony Burgess, who spoke on campus during the late 70s, later appeared on the Phil Donahue show and told a national audience that Kenyon College was home to the gates of hell and the most intense evil energy that he had ever experienced. (sighs) Now, upon hearing about this, the college actually requested a videotape of the show, but when it arrived, there was no mention of the evil at Kenyon or any hellish gates which some apparently take as kind of an eerie sign in and of itself. I think people are thinking it's kind of like the Mandela effect, where a lot of people remember him saying on the Phil Donahue show that Kenyon College was the home of the gates of hell. Mm -hmm. But when you actually review the tape, he didn't say it. It's very confusing as to where this gates of hell situation came about. Another origin story says that a local psychic is the one who claims that Kenyon is the home for the gates of hell. And another one says that the gates of hell are on Kenyon's campus, but not the stone pillars, but rather the old gated entrance to the bishop's house. Whatever the case, however the gates of hell legend came about, superstitions have grown up around the gates. Some people say that you shouldn't walk between the gates when the bells in the church of the holy spirit are chiming at midnight or you might be transported to hell itself others warn that you shouldn't look into the trees shading middle path there because of their shape they are considered quote pitchfork trees (laughs) which I, i have no idea what that means and i actually tried to google it but it sounds super ominous but there's nothing anywhere that says anything about pitchfork trees or what that means other than things about Kenyon College so it's a mystery it does sound ominous though so there's that yes and speaking of the Church of the Holy Spirit legend says that this 19th century chapel is also haunted because of course there are reports of a (laughs) priest ghost (laughs) a pitch black shape that can be seen under the choir loft Years ago, the father is said to have gone mad and locked himself in the office of the church, and legend has it that he hung himself in the bell tower and is now condemned to haunt the church forever as his eternal punishment. Joy. 
There's also the Kokosing House, which is also known as the Bishop's House, which is where the second or alternate gate to hell is supposed to be located, which was built in 1864 by Bishop Gregory Thornston Bedell. Residents and guests have reported organ music, doors that have been closed now standing open, strange noises in the front room, creaking floors, footsteps, and banging windows, and the resident ghost, a female, has been seen in the house balcony as well as stairway though no one knows exactly who she is lewis hall is where a freshman hung himself in the attic which has since been boarded up and here the lights turn on and off the toilets flush randomly and students often hear unexplainable knocking on their doors and then when they go to open them there's no one there in manning hall there is supposedly a student who died of leukemia before she could actually attend class so she keeps herself busy as if she's waiting for her first day to arrive so she rearranges furniture so the students belongings in her old dorm room room 108 as if she's preparing herself for the upcoming school year she's got that nervous rearranging energy i get that exactly exactly so one redditor asked when i was going through my research is Kenyon really haunted? Explaining that they'd come across a bunch of all this campus lore, both the gates of hell and the spooky residence halls, but he didn't believe in the supernatural and he was just like, but for real though, is Kenyon haunted? And user Do Erden replied, let me put it this way. I, like you, don't really believe in magic or the supernatural. That being said, if anywhere is haunted, Kenyon is. I kind of rushed through that one, but it was a lot of information. It was a lot of information that made me very unsettled. Yeah, I mean, I think my two least favorite things were the burnt arm that grabbed that girl while she was in bed. Yep. And then... The other story of that man who fell down the elevator shaft who likes to sit on girls' beds or, yep. even worse, lay on top of them and immobilize them. Yep, don't like any of that. I also didn't like the deeks. Oh, the deeks. <laughs> the deeks. All I'm saying is I have never been so happy that I go to school online. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, on a scale, para to normal... Five being para, one being normal. Kenyon College. I'm going to break a pattern here. And I'm going to score this thing twice on the skeptic scale. Okay. I'm going to give it the score I think it deserves. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to give it the score I want to give it. I don't know what that means. Continue. I'm going to say that it deserves a score of four. That is a lot of accounts mm-hmm. of various paranormal activity with backup for why it exists but i want to give it a two because just just hear me out hear me out okay 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 i want to give it a two because so many of those stories were centered around hell and i don't believe in hell fair enough does it change your mind that most of this information i got from kenyon's website itself no because i'm still going to give it a four because that's what i believe it deserves oh okay okay i just okay want to give it a two because i don't believe in hell the hell stuff but it's super creepy and i mean there's all these arguments that you can make for you know a hell doesn't have to be the christian hell you know that's x that's getting real deep and we're not that deep right now but that's terrifying 
There are so many different stories in so many different areas with so many different backgrounds. I don't like it. So many of the stories originated from security guards, like security officers. Yep. And so, yeah, most of this information is from Kenyon's website itself. They actually had a professor who was really, really dedicated to the haunted history of the campus. Is that the guy that you mentioned that does the tours? Yeah, he passed away a couple of years ago, so he doesn't do it anymore, and I couldn't find well, I mean, any... maybe he does. Oh, <laughs> uh, 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 I see you. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish that I would have been able to find some sort of, like, a written outline of what his tours were. I found an article describing him as a past professor that the writer had had, And they talked about how very dedicated he was to the tour and the stories and how he was funny when he gave them. He made jokes. Um, I also will say, which you already gave me a four. I'm not arguing the four. But most of the stuff about hell is completely unfounded. Yeah. Like they can't even figure out why. They're like, oh, and this is is good to hell. And there's pitchfork trees. And everyone's like, I don't know what that means. But you're right. It's spooky. (laughs) I think they were just trying to bring in a christian element to something that was already scary and they're like what are christians afraid of hell there's a gate of hell there we go (laughs) well before i go into our last story of the evening what's you didn't score it what score are you giving it oh i'm gonna give it a 4.25 oh we're getting in the real small decimals all right sweet It's a fourth. (laughs) 4.3 repeating, of course. (laughs) 4.25. Four and one fourth. All right. Well, I want to crack another one of these beers, but I can't do that until we finish this podcast. So I have a story to tell you. I'm so excited. I saw you find this story and then get really excited about it when we're hanging out before this. So... This Reddit story is not very far back like the previous ones have been. This is pretty recent. Mm-hmm. Um, we are still, as always, looking for listener stories. But in the absence of listener stories, we're finding our favorite spooky Reddit stories. Love it. This story was shared on the Paranormal subreddit 28 days ago by the user DuskMuse711. It is titled... Apparently, I babysat more than one kid. What? (laughs) When I was 13, I babysat a little girl named Emma, one of the sweetest kids you could think of. I was a regular babysitter for her, so much so that when I couldn't babysit for a few months, she called all of her other babysitters my name. This happened after I came back to be a regular babysitter. It was about 10.30 at night. I had already put Emma to bed and had been channel surfing. The house was set up so that the front half was an open concept living room, dining room, and kitchen. In between the living room and dining room was an open doorway to the back half of the house. At one end was Emma's room, and at the other end were her parents' rooms. The bathroom connected to the parents' room. Okay. Now, while sitting on the couch, I had heard something run down the hall to the bathroom. Assuming it was just Emma going to use the bathroom, I let it be until a few minutes went by and I heard the feet shuffling back down the hall. I turned to her to tell her to go back to bed and to make sure she flushed, as I hadn't heard it, but I only saw the tips of black hair that had run past the open doorway. Here's the problem. Emma is blonde. Ugh, I knew that was coming. 
I quickly jumped up and rushed to Emma's bedroom, throwing open the door. Her nightlight was bright enough to make her out as she sat up and looked at me, rubbing her eyes in confusion. I asked her if she had went to the bathroom, and when she shook her head, I did a once-over of her room, checking under her bed and a quick peek in her closet. I didn't see anything, and I just told Emma I was double-checking for monsters. I tucked Emma back in, saying goodnight. I headed out of her room again, leaving the door slightly open. I began to walk away, but stopped when I heard Emma speak. Thinking she was going to ask me something, I turned around, only to hear, You really should have said something. Don't scare her. I really like her. What? I didn't say anything to her mom about this, and I continued to babysit Emma until I moved away. I always made an effort after that to include whatever this being was. If Emma was drawing, an extra spot was set up for them. It seemed to make Emma happy, and nothing ever startled me again. End of story. Basically, kids are so creepy. Something was just hanging out with this Emma kid, and they were down for it mm-hmm. like an imaginary friend, mm-hmm. but not mm-hmm. imaginary mm-hmm. because but the real. babysitter saw but it. But real. <sighs> kids are creepy. Kids are creepy. Um, I posted on our Instagram last week that Dan from Real Life Ghost Stories had passed away from a pre-existing medical condition. And the one thing that I really bonded with him over, over the like year and a half that I listened to that podcast, is the fact that he thinks that little girl ghosts are the creepiest things. <laughs> and I also agree, anytime that there were children ghosts, he's like, nope, nope, nope. I'm right there with you. Oh. Did I tell you about my ghost update before we wrap this thing up? Alice? Miss Alice, yes. Miss Alice, yes. Yes, yes, yes. So I was hanging out with my friend Sarah, who is awesome mm-hmm. and amazing and super intuitive. They worked at the Electric Fetus for a long time, but you didn't work with them. Oh, yeah. I don't think I worked with a Sarah. Anyway, Sarah has done some work with mediums in the past and mm-hmm. was trying to find her guides and in that work with the medium she said that her guides had kind of these weird names that didn't sound like normal american names legit yeah (laughs) like your average white anglo-saxon american names so no britneys no yep no britneys no kayla's no alice's okay okay and sarah had a theory that maybe miss alice isn't a ghost that's haunting me. Maybe Miss Alice is a guide. Okay. And maybe her name is not Miss Alice. Maybe it's something that the Ghost Radar app could only pick up as average words. So said Miss Alice, but maybe it's something along that line. And so what I've determined is I need to get a big group to do the Ouija board with me so we can get a more accurate reading. You look, you're, you're like, I think... you're like, you're like, you're like, hesitant. like, <laughs> I, like, you know, I, know. I want to I ask you to do it. And you're like, I, I don't know. know that I want to. I know. I'm doing a little dance, which is like, I don't know. I'll I find other people to dance. do it. I don't want to get people to <laughs> no, do Ouija wanna... that don't want to do Ouija. Uh, I'm so torn because my mama told me, don't you do that Ouija board. But also. Yeah, I was raised by Catholics. I. I, She's I'm, Catholic. I'm not supposed to do Ouija boards either. I'd do it though. 
Well, she she did a Ouija board when she was a child, and she had a very weird and negative experience. And it's kind of not talked about a lot, but well known in the family that we're kind of sensitive folk and things kind of cling on to us. She's actually kind of concerned about the fact that I have a paranormal podcast that I talk about this <laughs> stuff every week. She's like, girl, you are you are just inviting things in. Well, you know. But also the experience. Yeah. I, I'm so torn. I'm so torn. Well, you have some time Andrea, to Andrea, I haven't decided it. yet. <laughs> That's my sister's name, Andrea. I haven't decided it yet. Don't. Well, you have some time to think on it. Don't worry. Okay. Okay. I mean, I might ask you about it next week, so we'll see. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you have maybe five days. In the meantime, if you have a story you'd like to share, Ouija board, UFO, uh, creepy family Ghost. experiences with ghosts, otherwise Cryptids. anything, please mm. feel free to send them to us. You can reach us at Left of Skeptic at gmail.com or on our website www.leftofskeptic.com and click the listener stories tab you can choose to remain anonymous if you like we just ask that you please include your pronouns because we do not want to misgender anybody please normalize pronouns by the way my pronouns are she her as are mine she her awesome you can also find us on social media we are on twitter as well as instagram at left of skeptic and on facebook as left of skeptic podcast well we would love to thank you for joining us this spooky wednesday and listening as we rambled on with an exceeding amount of background noise because it's past (laughs) grandma's weekend and traffic is everywhere we love you very much and thank you so much Oh, I know. This episode is at two hours long. We'll see what the actual final listener version is at, (laughs) but we are at recording one hour and 56 minutes. (laughs) All right. Well, y'all have a great day. Enjoy the rest of your spooky Wednesday. We love you. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. That's not even exhaust or exhaust. There's a plane flying overhead. <laughs> it's not fair that you have to deal with not only on the ground traffic, but also overhead traffic. I deal with planes, trains, and automobiles. <gasps> you do. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That was a really big.